Revelation chapter 14 open as we study it together this morning. Thinking of verses 14 to 20 today, the harvest of the earth. The harvest of the earth. Well, many of you know what it's like to live with the expectation of harvest. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a farming family or you still farm today. And even those of us who didn't grow up on a farm, we we live in a pretty rural uh, culture. And we're familiar with the yearly cycle of seed time and harvest time. And harvest, of course, is a very joyful time of the year. It's a time when uh, we give thanks for God's provision for another year that he has blessed. (coughs) In a sense, though, harvest, (coughs) harvest also marks the end of life. If you think about it, what has been growing and flourishing out in the fields is allowed to grow no longer. As soon as the farmer steps into his tractor or his combine harvester, that's it. The blades are out. Time's up. It's harvest. All through the Bible, harvest time is a picture of God's judgment, of the kingdom of God being made known and visible and coming fully and finally in our world. The moment when we find out who truly belongs to Christ And who doesn't? We read earlier from Joel 3.13. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. And so God through his prophet Joel there is saying that he will only allow evil to flourish and thrive for so long. Eventually there will be a harvest and that will be it. Evil will be cut off. We also read earlier the words of the Lord Jesus who also used the picture of harvest in several ways and at several times in his teaching but most often as a warning for judgment. Matthew 13 30 Jesus said let both grow together the wheat and the tares until the harvest and at harvest time I will tell the reapers gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. So friends, harvest and harvesting in the Bible are often a picture of the final judgment of Jesus Christ that will come in our world. And that's exactly what we have here in Revelation 14, verses 14 to 20. This is the sixth of the seven signs, the vision of the signs that we've been working through, beginning in chapter 12 and coming to an end, God willing, this evening in chapter 15. Last Sabbath uh, evening, we looked at verses 6 to 13, the the fifth of these signs, and we we saw a description of what will happen to God's enemies after the judgment. Uh, We thought about their eternal conscious torment in hell, which is described for us there in verses 6 to 13. And here in verses 14 to 20, the final judgment that will then usher in That eternal torment for unbelievers, that judgment is described here as the harvest of all the earth. And so this is something that we need to take incredibly seriously. Could well be the case that you're listening today either here in the building or listening online and and you're not yet ready for this harvest. You haven't taken seriously the fact that Jesus Christ is your judge and he is coming soon. Well, you need to get ready for what lies ahead. Some of us who are Christians, we we sometimes we lack motivation. 
We lack encouragement and confidence to keep going in our Christian lives. Maybe we're discouraged by the darkness of the world around us, the, the burdens we bear, the sin that we grapple with. Well, friends, knowing that this final harvest is coming should motivate us as well. It should motivate Christians to do, as we're told elsewhere in Revelation, to endure until we see the judge, the harvester, Jesus Christ, face to face. I want to think just uh, under two headings about this passage today. Very simply, we're going to think first of all about the harvester, and then we're going to think about the harvest. First of all, today we're going to think about the harvester, and the harvester in this passage is, of course, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, whom we've seen all throughout Revelation. If you look at Revelation 14, verse 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Jesus was described as one like a son of man way back at the very beginning of Revelation. Chapter 1 verse 13, John also described him there when when he first saw Jesus in Revelation as like a son of man. It's also a description of Jesus in the book of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. And of course son of man was Jesus' favourite description for himself. If you read through Matthew, Mark and Luke, uh, almost 80 times Jesus describes himself as the son of man. So there's no doubt about who John's talking about here when he says that he saw one like a son of man. It is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. Several angels also appear in this passage with Jesus, uh, assisting Jesus, if you like, as he carries out his harvest. And again, that's, that's a teaching we find elsewhere in Revelation and, and in the Bible that Jesus will come with his angels, that the angels will be involved uh, in, in, in some way in gathering the people for the final judgment. But our main focus should be on the Lord Jesus himself, the harvester. And I want to highlight several things to you about him uh, in this passage, the har- Jesus the harvester. First of all, notice that he is glorious in his divinity. He is glorious in his divinity. Verse 14 says that Jesus, the harvester, appears seated on a white cloud. A white cloud. And the, the word cloud, by, by my count, uh, it appears 25 times in the New Testament. And of those 25 times, it's actually only used to describe what we would call a, a, a cloud, a rain cloud, a weather cloud. It's only used once to describe clouds as we talk about them. And then Jude uses the word in a slightly different way. But all the other times in the New Testament that this word cloud is used, it's referring to what we might call the glory cloud. The glory cloud. The glory cloud in the Bible symbolizes the holy presence of God. Remember, for example, how Jesus was transfigured in front of his three closest disciples, Peter, James and John. Matthew 17 verse 5 says that Jesus' whole appearance changed. Moses and Elijah appeared either side of him on the mountain. And then it says, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from within the cloud said, this is my beloved son (coughs) with whom I am well pleased. And so in that moment, friend, Jesus' disciples 
caught a glimpse of his holy divine glory. They saw in that moment that Jesus is fully God as well as being fully man. Another mention of this cloud when Jesus was teaching his disciples about the end of the age. Uh, about the, the end of the world. He says in Matthew 24 verse 30. They will see the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And with great power and glory. And so again there the word cloud used by Jesus. It's, it's not being used in the way that we would uh, use the word cloud. Remember also what happened. When Jesus ascended back into heaven at the end of his earthly ministry. Acts chapter, 1 verse eight, Acts chapter 1 verse 9, sorry. says he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And by the way, what did the angels say to the disciples who watched that happen? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go. In other words, he will come back in the cloud. So friends, this cloud is no ordinary cloud. It's not just one of the clouds that's probably hanging over Dromore right now. This cloud is the supernatural glory cloud of God. And it symbolizes for us Jesus' throne and his divine nature. It reminds us that Jesus is God. It's a white cloud because Jesus is pure, perfect, holy, holy, holy. And when Jesus, the harvester, comes back, friends, every eye will see this glory cloud. Every eye will see the Lord Jesus Christ. We won't be looking up and wondering which cloud it is. It will be perfectly obvious where Jesus is and how he is coming. And we will say, there's the lamb in his holiness and power and glory coming to judge the world. So Jesus, the harvester, is glorious in his divinity. Secondly, he is perfect in his humanity. He's perfect in his humanity. One of the reasons that Jesus so often described himself as the son of man during his earthly ministry was because it emphasized that he fully, literally had come in human flesh, that he was himself fully a human man. And it's so important that we understand this and repeat this, friends, that Jesus is not half human and half God. He is fully human and fully God. One person in two natures. And John's language here emphasizes that Jesus appears here for the judgment in the perfection of his humanity. That Jesus conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. Took on human flesh fully at that moment. And he will never give up his human flesh. He will remain fully God and fully man forever now. And the language here of John's vision emphasizes the perfection of his humanity. John says he's one like a son of man. You might say why does John say like a son of man? Well quite possibly friends because John here is seeing the same Jesus that he spent three years with on earth, but he's seeing him so much more glorious, so much more awesome than he saw day to day during his earthly ministry. He recognizes Jesus. He recognizes him, recognizes him in his humanity, but he's seeing him in the full perfection of his humanity 
and of his divinity. What's remarkable too here is that Jesus coming in judgment is still acting in obedience to God the Father. What I mean by that is if you look at verse 15, look at verse 15, it says, Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap. This is the angel saying to the one on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth. Now at first glance here, this might seem quite strange to you because here is the Son of Man, Jesus, doing what an angel tells him to do. And you might think, well, why is an angel telling Jesus what to do? Well, remember what role angels perform, friends. Angels are messengers of God. Angels deliver the will of God, they declare the, the will of God to others. And so here I believe God the Father has sent his command via an angel to the Son of Man. The hour has come, return to the earth in judgment. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verse 36. He said, Concerning that day or the hour, the hour of harvest, the hour of judgment, no one knows. Not even, he says, the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. That's why, by the way, it's just utterly ridiculous when Christians or anyone else starts telling you that they know the date the world will end. I was hearing recently about a church that predicted that this past October would be the end of the world. Well, here we all still are. You think of the damage that that will have done to some who have been caught up in this whole idea, the earth, the, the world is about to end. No one knows. The son doesn't even know. The son will only come back at the hour that the father commands him to come back. And so there is the Lord Jesus still submitting in his humanity to the will of his father. And by the way, friends, that's why Jesus, if you like, gets to be the harvester. That's why he deserves to be the judge. Because he, and only he, has obeyed the father perfectly in everything. He submitted to his father's commandments and will all throughout his life never once transgressing God's law. That's why he is glorious. That's why he is resurrected and seated at the Father's right hand. That's why he is worthy to come and judge all the peoples of the earth. He's the perfect son of God, the son of man. So glorious in his divinity, perfect in his humanity. Also we see here Jesus, the harvester, ruling in his victory. Ruling in his victory. Verse 14 says that the one on the cloud has a golden crown on his head. Interestingly enough, there's a couple of different words for crown in the Greek language. Uh, The one used here emphasizes victory after struggle. Uh, In the ancient world, if you competed in the Olympic Games, I don't know if you got a gold medal in in the very earliest days of the Olympics, but you got a crown. You got a wreath. And maybe you've seen that symbolism at times. You know, someone holding a sort of a torch with a a leafy wreath around their heads. 
That's the word that is used here in the original. It's the, the crown of victory. The crown that you get having conquered your enemies. Having conquered your, your competitors so to speak. That's the crown that Jesus wears here. Because he has defeated all his enemies. And he is the undisputed king of all the nations. We thought about this last Lord's Day evening friends. In the previous section of Revelation 14. Everyone will bow to this king in the end. The only question is, will you bow willingly to this king, having trusted in this king for your salvation? Or will you bow begrudgingly, fearfully, knowing that he has conquered you and has come to judge you? The last thing we see about this harvester is that he is ready for his harvest. He's ready for his harvest. Look at verse 14. The very end of verse 14 says... He has a sharp sickle in his hand. And all through the Bible, the the sickle is a picture, of course, of judgment. This is what farmers would have used to slice down their crops. Boys and girls, there's a little picture of a sickle there inside the bulletin today. If you don't know what it is, it's this round-shaped, very sharp blade. And you just slash and slash and slash. And you're bringing in the harvest. You're gathering in the crops. And the Lord Jesus here holds his sharp sickle in his right hand. He is ready. The harvest is imminent. As soon as the Father sends out the command, the Son will come with his mighty angels and he will sweep the earth with his sickle. And there will be no escape. No one will be left out. Everyone will face the judge. Everyone All of us, you and I, the whole world, and that will be it. So here is the harvester, friends. We're approaching a time of year when many Christians like to take time to meditate on the first coming of Jesus into the world. And I say this every year that although we're not going to bring bring in practices from a holiday season to a worship service because they're not part of worship. Nonetheless, insofar as we open the scriptures and think over in our hearts the significance of Christ's first coming, all that it means, the, the, the miracle of it, it's a perfectly good thing to do. But friends, the danger of the, the Christmas holiday as it's been wrapped up in all kinds of other secular beliefs and practices in our culture is that the baby Jesus remains the baby Jesus in many people's minds and understanding. And a baby offends no one, threatens no one, challenges no one. Jesus did not remain a baby, nor is he only gentle Jesus, meek and mild. The next time you see Jesus, He will be Jesus the judge. Jesus the harvester. Sitting on a throne. With a crown on his head and a sickle in his hand. And fire in his eyes. Ready to thresh down the nations in judgment. And you may protest and say I'm not that bad. And that sounds extreme. And that sounds over the top. Well dear friend what are you going to do with all your sin? Do you really think that our lies and our lust and our laziness and our selfishness 
and our covetousness and our idolatry. Does nothing happen to those things? Do they all just fade into the ether? Is that what we teach our children? That there's no consequences for our actions? Your sin has consequences. Every one of your sins has consequences. We either confess them now in the day of grace and mercy, the time that God has granted us to repent, or we will stand before the judge, the Son of Man, and wait for him to pass sentence on our sins. Jesus Christ, the harvester, is glorious in his divinity, perfect in his humanity, ruling in his victory, and ready for the harvest. Are you ready to face him? So we've thought about the harvester. I want to think secondly today about the harvest. The harvest. And again, just to highlight a few points about this harvest uh, fairly briefly to you from the passage. First of all, the harvest is certain and swift. The harvest is certain and swift. The Son of Man appears for this harvest at the Father's command via the angel. Verse 15, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour has come. It may seem like this judgment is a long time in coming to us friends. The the centuries go by. The the gospel is being preached. The the church continues to persevere under persecution. We might think all this time passes. The harvest hasn't come. But that doesn't make it any less certain that it will come. Stage rat in our house we're, we're quickly learning that. Children's concepts of time are very different from adult concepts of time. There's often no point trying to explain that something is coming very soon. It still feels ages away to to little ones. Well, friends, in many ways, that's the best way for us to understand the the second coming of Jesus Christ. Peter says, 2 Peter 3, verse 8, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some count slowness, but is patient. Friends, every second that Christ doesn't return is another second of grace and patience from God, but that does not make the return of Christ any less certain. And in fact, the passage also emphasizes that when that certain and final harvest comes, it will also be swift. Again, verse 15 Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. And then notice verse 16. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Friends, as simple as that, one swing of the sickle and the earth is reaped in this picture in Revelation. Emphasizing the swiftness, the decisiveness of the judgment of Jesus Christ. Similarly, look at verse 19. The angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth And threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Again, swift, sudden, decisive action. This harvest will come. It is a certain day. And it will be swift and final. And that swift action is emphasized to us in in two different pictures of harvest here. Uh, Verses 15 to 16 uh, describe what is a, a grain harvest or a wheat harvest. Uh, The word for ripe at the end of verse 15 is a word that means dried out. It's the stage the grain gets to when it's ready to be harvested. 
And then in verses 18 to 20, the picture changes to a grape harvest. And the word ripe that's used this time, uh, it's, it's the same word in English, ripe, as in verse 15. But it's a different word in Greek. And this time it means something that's about to burst. It's like if you were to take a, a fully ripe grape in your hand and it almost feels like if you squeeze it too hard, it's just going to burst in your hands. It's, it's ready. It's ripe. Now, there's a, a bit of a division of opinion here. Um, it's nothing to worry about, really. Um, but some commentators suggest that both of these pictures, the, the ripened grain and the ripened grapes, that both of them represent judgment of unbelievers. And they suggest that the two pictures uh, emphasize the same thing, the judgment of unbelievers only. And so G.K. Beale, Daniel Aiken, uh, Derek Thomas all take that interpretation that these two pictures are the judgment of, of the wicked. However, there, others suggest that the, the first harvest here, the, the wheat harvest, is actually a picture of Christ uh, gathering in his own people first, separating his own people from the unbelievers of the world and taking them safely unto himself. And then the grapes were told, they're quite clearly, uh, that's the, the judgment of unbelievers. They're thrown into the wine press of God's wrath verse 19 but nothing like that is mentioned regarding the wheat in verse 16 Uh, and so perhaps the wheat is a picture of Christ's people uh, in the same way that in Jesus parable in Matthew 13 he describes the wheat being safely taken into the barn whereas the weeds are burned up and destroyed Uh, Joel Beakey, Vody Bauckham, William Hendrickson were all of that second opinion and I don't like it when all those names that I've just mentioned disagree because usually they're all on the same page. Um, but uh, you might wonder, well, which of it is it? Well, if you really push me for my opinion, I would maybe tend to the second opinion, that the first harvest described here is the harvest of believers safely gathered to Christ. The grape harvest is quite clearly, undisputably, the harvest of unbelievers. But the main point of the passage, friends, is, even if you disagree with that, the main point of it is that Judgment Day is certain and swift and it is not going to take long. We won't be standing in a queue twiddling our thumbs waiting for our turn. The final harvest will be decisive and swift. Jesus knows who his people are. He will, as the Bible explains elsewhere, he will separate the wheat from the chaff, the the sheep from the goats in an instant, in an instant, it will be done. It will be certain and swift. This harvest will also be dreadful. It will be dreadful. It will be dreadful for those who are not God's people. Verse 19 says that the angel who reaps the grape harvest throws the grapes into the great wine press of the wrath of God. In the ancient world, to, to harvest grapes, you, you would throw them into a big tub or a vat And you literally got into the tub yourself and you stomped around on the grapes. And of course the juice would go everywhere. You would splatter the grapes to a pulp. uh, And the juice would then collect in a a trough under uh, the bigger vat that the juice would be collected. Friends, what's being described for us here in picture language is the wrath of God pressing down upon his enemies. It's a dreadful picture of the the righteous 
holy judgment of God on sin and sinners. They will be crushed. They will be unable to stand any longer in God's presence. It will be like the foot of a giant comes down upon them. Truly it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And yet as dreadful as the judgment will be, friends, it will be a deserved judgment. A deserved judgment. This is what the saints in heaven, we've seen in Revelation, they've been praying for this. They've been waiting for this. Notice, by the way, the angel here in verse 18, uh, coming to deal with the grape harvest, he comes out from the altar. That's the altar that we saw way back in chapter 6 and chapter 8, where the prayers of the saints rise before God like incense. And the saints are asking, how long until those trampled down by the, the, the followers of the Lamb who have been trampled down by their enemies, how long until those enemies are trampled down themselves? How long before those who beat pastors to a pulp and leave them to die in the roadside in Laos or in prison camps in North Korea, how long before they're beaten to a pulp themselves? How long before the harvester reaps his harvest? How long before the righteous judge brings his judgment? And here at the final harvest of the earth, friends, the, the how long prayers of God's people are answered. Judgment has arrived swiftly, decisively, and it will be dreadful for those who are enemies of the Son of Man. It will be certain, swift, dreadful, and finally, and really we've already seen this, but just to emphasize the point, it will be global. It will be global. Look at verse 20. The winepress was trodden outside the city. There's the enemies of God separated from the holy city of God. And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The language there, friends, emphasizes that this is a bloodbath. Can you imagine walking down streets where not just not, not water is up to your knees or up to your waist, or even higher than that, a horse's bridle, but blood. Blood. Imagine trying to keep your head above blood. It's picture language again, uh, symbolic language emphasizing the totality of this judgment. And we see the number here, 1,600 stadia. It's about 184 miles, but again, a symbolic number here. What does that number 1,600 symbolize? Well, various suggestions made, but the number four throughout Scripture is a number symbolizing the whole earth. We talk today about all corners of the globe, which is a funny phrase because it's a globe. It doesn't have corners, but that's the way we talk about it, all four directions of the earth. Um, the number 10 in Revelation is the number of completeness and finality. And so perhaps you get 4 squared is 16, uh, 10 squared 100, 16 times 100, 1,600. And so I think the best suggestion for the number 1,600 is that it represents the whole earth, all humanity. Nobody left out of this judgment. And all of God's enemies trampled in the winepress of his wrath. And I ask you again, in light of that dreadful and gruesome picture, friend, are you ready for this judgment? 
Jesus said, you must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And that no preacher and no church and no cult can predict. Christian, are you living as though this last day is coming? Some of you will know Martin Luther's answer when someone asked him, what would he do if he knew the Lord Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Luther said, I would plant a tree. What he meant was he was ready for that day to come. He, his conscience was perfectly clear that he was living his life in such a way that he could do nothing more in service of his God. He could do nothing more to proclaim the gospel and to uh, live, uh, live in, with, with, with faith in Jesus Christ. Christian, if we knew that tomorrow was the day of Jesus' return, would we suddenly feel that we'd better start making some drastic changes to our lifestyle, to what we do with our finances, our priorities, our intake of scripture, our witnessing? Or would we be able to plant a tree, satisfied and ready for the return of the King? We need to remember as we see the celebration of sin in our culture, the persecution of Christians, the the mockery that we're seeing for the Christian faith, it is not going to last. It's for now. It's not forever. Judgment is coming. So play the long game, Christian. Don't live with a short-term mindset. Don't let the pressures of here and now dictate How we live. The temptations of here and now dictate how we live. Let this certain last day dictate how we live. And if you're not a Christian this morning, the question that you surely should be asking yourself in light of this passage, how can I escape this dreadful, crushing outpouring of God's wrath? How can I avoid being like a grape that is squished in a wine press? What must I do to be saved? But dear friend, the thing is, God must judge your sin. He cannot turn a blind eye to it. Your sin has to go into the wine press of God's wrath. He is a holy God. He can't ignore it. But you do not have to go into the wine press with it. A few hours before he died, Jesus was... Outside the holy city. He was in a garden called Gethsemane. A place where quite possibly olives and grapes grew. And would one day be harvested. And as Jesus considered what lay ahead of him at the cross. And the fact that that cup of wrath that we thought about last week. Of God's fury at sin. That cup was going to be poured out. Come crashing down upon him. Friends. Jesus sweated blood. Only under the most acute stress and psychological turmoil can the human body sweat blood. But that's what happened to Jesus. He was being spiritually squeezed, if you like, in Gethsemane. Before his blood came pouring out at the cross. There he was in that garden, in amongst the grapes, in the wine press. The righteous one. The only man who never sinned. The only person who doesn't deserve to have God's wrath trample him down. What a scandal. 
That one without sin should suffer in the place of sinners. That he should be trampled down and his blood pushed out of him. But he did that, friends, so that we wouldn't have to go into the wine press with the fury of God's wrath. That we could escape and that the harvester could also be our saviour. That harvester is coming. That harvest is coming. You must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Amen.